Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. How are you, Paul? Well, good afternoon, Peter. I'm, I'm well. I'm, uh, I'm not no coronavirus <laughs> No coronavirus as well or uh, COVID-19, which I think is the actual name of the disease. Yeah. And if you're a real purist in this... As you are. As I am. Yeah. I think it's actually called SARS-2. Oh, God. But... Uh, We'll leave that Why forever. are there so many wankers out there that have to always change the names of things? Because there are lots of coronaviruses, <laughs> if, oh. that's, if that's the correct um, yeah. viruses. I'm not yeah. And what these, what these people do is they create a whole series of other wankers. Can I, can I use the word wanker? I guess I can use I guess you word. have already. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, these people who start correcting you, you're know, like, it's mm. coronavirus, and then you start correcting me. Last week it was COVID-19, and now you're correcting me SARS-2. Well, I am because I'm a purist, Peter. Uh, you are but a purist. A bit like bushfires, I'm an instant expert on, <laughs> on all matters viral. That's right. You are a bit of a, You do actually go to more detail than most people. And that's one part I like about you, Paul, because I don't go to that sufficient detail. Putting this together, we cover the issues. But properly. there is a serious side, obviously, the virus, apart obviously from the tragedy of, of uh, what's doing to people, but yeah. it's having a big impact on business. Peter, and of yeah. course, uh, I guess it's spread in Australia. A lot of our retailers um, are starting to feel, in some areas, the yeah. impact of the virus on. Activity. And it will get worse uh, in terms of retail because until we have travellers coming back to Australia, it's going to be a really difficult time for them. We we got 1.4 million Chinese tourists last mm. year. Take them away. Uh, sure, they'll come back later in the year, but. Most uh, retailers are in the red until you get to Christmas. And this Christmas, we had bushfires followed by floods. It's been a shocker. And the other area people forget about it is, of course, that because so many things are manufactured in China or parts mm. of so many things are manufactured in China, you now people are now starting to talk about the disruption to the supply chain, which means that... Uh, Manufacturers won't be able to make goods, and retailers won't be able to get mm. goods to stock. So yeah. there's a, you know, even if the um, the travel issue and obviously the education issue is is problematic for a lot of our companies, but potentially for our retailers and other people in different different parts of industry, uh, the inability to get supplies uh, so they can use them in their goods that they're manufacturing or selling um, yeah. could also have a huge impact on, on profitability. Yep. So we'll be talking to Russell Zimmerman, who's the Executive Director of the Australian Retailers Association, to see how is retail doing. He also has a couple of other issues as well, which we'll get into as well. John Lees then comes on the program. John is a fantastic sales customer service guy, used to be head of marketing for Schweitzkopf, the, the hair care company. Um, and John, apart from being a fantastic uh, analyst of what's wrong with businesses, particularly when they're ignoring their customers, is arguably one of the funniest um, business speakers I've ever heard. In, in fact, the first speech I ever did, Paul, was actually a, a show and tell. It's a whole bunch of people who book people like me. And I, as a young economist, I had 
one good joke at the beginning and one good joke mm-hmm. at the end. And John actually came on before me and he had the crowd in fits for about 10, 15 minutes and then I had to go on. So it was the opposite. Like a warm-up act should be better than the lead act. And, so, and I completely died. Absolutely yeah, well, I've always blamed that so-and-so. That sounds like a uh, high bar to, uh, to pass. It's always, it's, always, uh, it's always nice to come on as someone who's uh, been a little flat. Yeah, I love coming out for an accountant. I love coming out for an accountant or an actuary. Yeah. People say, oh, what a breath of fresh air. He had three jokes rather than one. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, tell me, how many jokes do you normally do? Because uh, you, you did a speech last night and you were trying out a couple of your new jokes yeah. on me. I thought they were okay. Yeah, that over forty minutes, yeah. I, over a forty-minute speech, I'll try and get five reasonably funny observations, and some are just simple mm. jokes, but some are, you know, like Seinfeld t- uh, type observations that tie in with something in current affairs. Yeah, and there's a message there for the audience, right? Yeah, Presumably exactly. That's what you yeah. want them to take that's away. That's what I try to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, there are a few Scott Morrison jokes there at the moment. You know, like I taught him economics, not marketing. Uh, those sort of things, and people like that. You know? I thought you might have talked about the bushfires, Peter, but uh, no. Now, you were a patrol captain, of course, at the beach at the North uh, Bondi. North Bondi right. I don't think North Bondi has an RFS, but uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that bushfires at North Bondi. There's port. probably somewhere. I'm not sure there is somewhere close to North Bondi that has an RFS, Peter, but I'm sure... Maybe uh, Royal, Sy- Royal Sydney might have one. There's plenty of bush there. Anyway, next one, our final we guest... We digress too far. We digress too far. Uh, our final guest is Steve Huey, who's the founder of a business called I Fly Flat. And the first time I saw it spelt, what in the iffily lat? Anyway, it's a basically a business that helps you use your um, velocity frequent flyer points to make sure you fly flat. Get in business class. So he has a basically a program that finds out all the airlines in the world and he'll get them for you at the best possible points price. So hang on to those points and, and use them better. And use them better and fly flat. Exactly right. That's the show for the day. Let's kick off with Russell Zimmerman from the Australian Retailers Association. My next guest on the Switzer program is Russell Zimmerman, who's the executive director of the Australian Retailers Association. And I know uh, Russell's hot under the colour about lots of things, uh, and one of those is merchant fees, but we've got to talk to you about coronavirus first. How is that going to affect the retailers, Russell? And welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, Look, coronavirus is a huge problem for the industry. Um, The retail industry is obviously very reliant on Tourism and tourism has been badly affected by the coronavirus. But it goes beyond just the immediate, where we haven't got tourists coming in, not spending money. That's obviously one area. The other area that's also of concern is that retailers rely on an incredibly large amount of their uh, products, their stock coming out of China. And even when they're coming out of other countries, a lot of the componentry comes out of China. So we're already being told by retailers that to expect um, late stock. Some retailers are telling me it may well affect stock into the future. And when I talk about the future, I talk about fashion. That might be um, sort of all, um, beyond autumn going into winter or, or maybe even into the spring-summer stock. And I guess that's all going to be very much dependent upon how long it takes for um, the virus to, to be over the, for us to be over the worst of it and for travel and for communication and for products to be able to be manufactured back out of China. So huge issue for the industry in more than one way. 
And, and Russell, we haven't uh, seen any data yet about uh, retail sales for January, but what's what's the anecdote out there, particularly with the impact of the bushfires in the eastern states? Did that have a big effect on retailers? Yeah, look, obviously, um, firstly, the drought had, had a fairly big impact on the retail industry, um, and that had been going on for quite a while. The the average retail sales for the last 50 years have been sitting at around about 3.8%. Um, currently, we're sitting at around about 2.6, maybe even a little bit under that. And I suspect by the time we get the next lot of figures out, uh, which is about a week or so's time, we're probably going to be looking at a fairly tough um, period right over the Christmas period. And I suspect that the ARA's um, indication figures uh, that we put out earlier before Christmas are probably going to need to be very much revised. Um, I don't think we're going to hit anywhere close to it. Um, I think we've just really had a very tough couple of months um, because of the bushfires, because of the coronavirus, um, and obviously the drought was already underlying there. And then if you really want to throw another, um, shall I say, a problem into, into the industry, we've also got some retailers who um, have probably been through some flooding and have got some issues around uh, too much water now in some places. Yeah, so, certainly tough being a retailer, particularly with the bushfires and followed by floods in other areas. But look, one of the issues that you've been talking about publicly is is about rent. Now, that's a, a very big cost for a number of retailers. Uh, are Australian rents that retailers are facing high by global standards? And what, if anything, can retailers do about high rents? Well, well firstly, can I say that the Rents are going to vary from country to country. So whether they're too high or not, I guess is a matter of conjecture. I think the bigger problem we've got with rents in Australia is the big landlords and across the board, I'm talking about the vicinities of this world, the Westfields, all those major landlords tend to have a clause in their contract. That clause goes something like CPI plus two, maybe CPI plus two and a half, or 5% year on year. Mm. Now, earlier we were talking about the retail industry, and I said we're probably sitting at around about 2.6% year on year growth at the moment, um, and it may even fall below that. How do you run a business if you're getting approximately a 45 to 5% increase year on year? How do you run that when your uh, industry is sitting at around about 2.5, 2.6% year on year growth? Um, well, actual fact, you're going backwards. And then on top of obviously the rent, paying, you get things like um, energy costs, which have escalated, um, insurance costs, which no doubt will escalate and will continue to escalate because of the, the issues around the fires and floods. Um, all those costs keep escalating for retailers, and yet we don't ever really see landlords coming to us and saying, well, look, how can we work with you? What can we do um, to support the retail industry? Now, I did notice a commentary earlier this week that some of the big landlords have actually had um, negative growth, well, you can't really have negative growth, so they've had a downward growth mm -hmm. um, in their retail rents over the last little while, and that does not surprise me. Um, I think when you start seeing the number of retailers that we've had uh, look towards going into administration, um, that will also add to it because once that happens, all bets are off with your rent. So mm -hmm. you've got people like Jeans West who would have told their landlords that they will need to renegotiate all those rents. Ishka will be in the same boat. Um, as well some of the other retailers that have um, put themselves into uh, voluntary administration. Uh, and that is a way in which they can renegotiate those rents. And just to get a gauge of how important the rent is, I mean, it is a major part of the retailer's cost base, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah look, for um, probably the fashion industry, um, it's around about 25 26% of their turnover. Wow. Um, other industries will not necessarily be that high. You, you probably so that, so that, means, that, that means if, if you spend uh, $100 on a, on a fashion item, $25 of that is going to cover the retailer's mm. rental costs. Yep. Is that, that, that right? That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Mm. That's before wages. Um, or so on top of that, you're obviously going to add wages, electricity, um, insurance, and all those other things. So yes, mm. you're exactly right. About twenty five dollars um, out of a hundred. And look, that's an average. Some are paying more, some are paying less. Mm. Um, where you say have an electrical store, um, well, you're probably paying a long way less, and it could be down as a few percent, three or four or five percent um, over the, the turnover of the business. And, and that's because those businesses have a much lower margin. Fashion is obviously seen being a very high-fashion business. Okay. Now, Russell, I, I know, you, you know you're not a whinger. You've never been a whinger in your whole life, but you seem to be whinging about these merchant fees um, t- and, and tap-and-go charges. Tell us, in a nutshell, what is the big issue? Well, firstly, um, if you go back a few years ago, there was debit cards that were issued by building societies and then later on by banks. And when we had those cards that we used to either put them through the mag stripe or we inserted them, they would come up with three questions. The first question was check, the second question was savings, the third question was credit, yeah. and the customer had the right to choose how that transaction would be routed. If we move forward five years or so after, or five years ago, um, we then developed tap and go. Now, it was sold to the industry on being quick, and it was enabling more customers to go through um, the terminal. The problem that the banks did to tell us was that they had decided to route the transactions via Visa or MasterCard, depending upon whose signature, whose logo was on that card. In other words, it was issued by Visa or via the MasterCard system. So when we tap with that card, the questions don't get asked, and the banks naturally route it through the most expensive system. Now, just to give you an idea of that, if you're a fashion shop and you're um, putting it through the check or saving system, you're probably going to pay ten cents on your hundred dollar dress. If it goes via, if, if, if it, so that's by what we call the FPOS network. If it doesn't, and it goes back through um, the schemes, either Visa or Mastercard, that same debit transaction will probably go through at about sixty six cents, maybe up to seventy cents, depending upon what the retailers negotiate. Now they're approximate figures, but it's about a fifty cent variance. You know, you're very smart to realise if you do that 100 times a day, a day and then you multiply that by seven days a week and multiply it by um, you know, 365 days a year, um, you've got a huge cost. And what actually brought us to all of this uh, and woke us all up to it was we had a fashion merchant who was two-thirds of the way rolling out tap-and-go in their business. They came to the IRA and they've got around, I'm going to say about a $600 million turnover, maybe a bit more, and they hit their bottom line after about six months, two-thirds of the way of rolling it out, was around $400,000. We took that to the Reserve Bank and said, this is an unintended consequence, and in actual fact, what the banks have done is start to increase the fees by stealth, and they didn't come up forward and say to us, well, um, you know, this was going to happen. So we think that, um, we thought that there was around about $500 million worth of costs to the retail industry. Um, we've since probably revised that. We think that may be even higher than that. One of the areas we had to take into account, we'd looked at what we call general retail. We had to take things like 
um, Hungry Jacks and McDonald's and people like that. Now, my understanding is that McDonald's and Hungry Jacks have now um, decided to route their transactions via the FPOS network and that will obviously save them money because it's at a much cheaper rate than if they did it via their uh, Visa or MasterCard scheme. There is, and I have to say this, there is a, a couple of things that I should note. The first is that MasterCard, um, in fairness, MasterCard have dropped their fees, so they've become more competitive, and that's exactly what we hope for, that you know, by doing this, the fees would become more competitive by the schemes. The other issue that we've also um, been woken up to is that Coles have decided also to do their transactions via um, the uh, FPOS network in many cases, and we've found that some of the banks have decided that what they, they are going to do is to put a fee for the transaction going via the FPOS. That fee can be anything from $0.50 cents a transaction up to $2. And let me tell you, if a, if a retailer was charging um, anywhere anything like that, we'd be up in front of the ACCC for gouging. We'd be told we couldn't do that. Um, that would be like surcharging. So there is a downside to it. There's probably about 20 small institutions that are doing that, but we're trying to work on those and say to them they need to remove their very antiquated charges and they go back to legacy systems that they had in many years ago. Now, Paul's got a question for you, Russell, but just before he does, so this is not affecting the consumer. It's purely affecting the merchant, right? To cost essentially, other, yeah, essentially, other than what I just spoke about, that slight issue with the, some of those smaller yeah. building societies, it is purely and simply a merchant cost, uh, cost that issue. we've just had to take. Yep, yep, yep. And, and, Russell, you want all the banks to roll out this least cost routing. Is that essentially what you're asking for? Yeah, look, probably even go one step forward. That What we'd actually like to do, firstly, is to offer what we call smart routing. Um, and by smart routing, I mean if certain transactions will always be cheaper to go through um, the, the Visa or MasterCard network. So if you're a news agent, as an example, and you're putting through a paper and a bar of chocolate, might be 3 or $4, it actually might be better to pay a percentage of the sale mm-hmm. rather than pay the clip fee. Um, and what we would like machines to do is actually work out whether it's cheaper to send it via FPOS or whether it's cheaper to send it via the scheme being either Visa or MasterCard. Um, so that's that's what essentially we'd like to do. But the other thing, the banks aren't going out there and promoting that they can do this. Most of the banks can actually have, have most of the banks have actually got least cost routing. Some of them have got smart routing. There's only been one acquirer that's gone out and really actively told their clients about this, and that's a small acquirer called Tyro. Um, there's probably a couple other small ones, but the big banks haven't gone out and really promoted this to their retailers and their merchants. And they should be saying to them, you need to look at this and you need to come to us and talk to us about it so we can save you money. But it's not in those banks' interest. And the reason for that is that that fee that I spoke about, either the FPOS fee or the Visa or MasterCard fee, that actually goes back to what we call the issuing bank. So the bank that issued the card actually received that interchange fee. And that's what, or the merchant service fee, whatever you like to call it. Yeah. And that's why they won't come forward and go to the merchant and say, hey, have we got a deal for you? We can save you hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, maybe millions in some cases. Um, we do know, and I know Jack Gantz from Chemist Warehouse won't mind me saying this. Jack has certainly done some major work with the banks, and he saved himself an incredibly large amount of money by doing um, least cost routes. And that's what we, all we want the banks to do is to come out to their um their, their, their retailers, merchants, and say, look at this, make sure you're aware of it, 
make sure you talk to us about it and let's see how we can save your money. Okay, Ru- Russell, time out. I feel like I'm a, I'm a coach in the basketball team, you know, and you just you know, pl- want to keep on shooting. Now, listen, mate, one last question. Is there anyone in government who's supporting you on this? Oh, yes, look, essentially the, um, the, there was a report done um, by the federal government, and the federal government came out said that they should um, offer at least possible smart routing. And certainly the Reserve Bank has been absolutely heroic in their support of it. The, the Reserve Bank is absolutely saying this should be done. It's, it's a matter of importance and a matter of urgency. Okay, mate. Thanks for joining us on the program. As always, the champion of retail. Thanks very much, Peter. And thanks very much, Paul. And that was Russell Zimmerman from the Australian Retailers Association. It's time for a word from our sponsor and... I'm the sponsor in this case, and we have a conference coming up next week which we'd like to invite people to. Yeah, on Tuesday, Peter, our Switzer Small and Micro Cap Investor Day. Uh, we're going to have some great companies, uh, and right after reporting season, off the bat of reporting season, telling us about what they're up to, their strategies, you can ask them questions. Yep. These are CEOs talking about. Uh, put them under pressure in terms of what they're doing and uh, what the opportunities. Plus, we'll have... Uh, uh, Julia Lee and Michael McCarthy sharing their insights. Uh, Tony Featherston's coming up. Yeah. Uh, um, he's one of the smartest guys I know at uh, analysing companies. So yep. you're going to ask him as to what he looks for. So this is uh, in Sydney on Tuesday, the 3rd of March. That's next Tuesday um, at the Fulton Hotel. We've got a, just a handful of tickets left. Go to switzerevents.com.au switzerevents all one word .com.au but hurry tickets are almost done and uh, look it should be a great um, great day and we should point out the Fullerton is the old western hotel yeah it's good to point that out because I was was thinking about the the Fullerton going "Mm, where am I going on Tuesday yeah yeah. yeah, it is uh, it's the old western hotel it's the old western near near the GPO Martin Place I'm glad you said that Peter because I was thinking (laughs) I'm, I'm a person who thinks about the customer and our next guest is going to uh, tell us a lot about looking after the customer. Joining me on the program is John Lees. Now, John is the former sales and marketing director of Schweitzkopf in Australia. He's a motivational speaker. He's an author. He's a guy who um, big companies drag in to improve their sales team. And I've known him for years. And uh, what he doesn't know about sales isn't worth knowing. John, thanks for joining us on the program. My pleasure. Thank you. So I should actually explain, explain to my um, uh, listeners that you have recently located to the U.S. where you're plying your trade there. How different is it dealing with U.S. companies doing the sort of things that you do, John? Well, um, first and foremost, uh, what, I've, what I've observed here is what, what one would call, what I call a marketing mentality. And I, I really don't think it's any different in Australia or any place else. It's um, a marketing mentality in this instance means that you have either your focus is on them and us, them being the market, us being the organization, or us and them. Now, without wanting to do so, in excess of 90% of organizations have an us and them focus. They have no, nothing against their customers. Obviously, they want to do the best by their customers. But their customers are um, not their main point of focus. Their main point of focus, um, not surprisingly, is their commercial success, their ability to achieve um, their results instead of 
setting results that they want to, uh, goals that they want to achieve for their customers. So that really is um, a very difficult hurdle to, to overcome for, for organizations uh, uh, John, from every possible angle. Listening to you, I instantly thought about two pretty successful businesses where the founders of that business always put the consumer first. And that, that was Richard Branson and Virgin and uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Um, Right. Do you base it, do you agree with me on those on those uh, two examples? Yes. Well, I'm sure you know more about the detail than I do. Um, uh, but uh, certainly, um, that's basically what I'm talking about. It's got nothing to do with falling in love with customers. It's just you know, for instance, I, I you know, it, being a speaker, I, I go in front of audiences. Um, I spoke in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago to a quite large audience. I mean, my my focus is making absolutely sure that the audience thoroughly enjoys the session and that they make lots of notes and find it to be helpful, etc. That's That's my aim. Um, and, 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 and if I achieve that, then, you know, I'm going to be doing okay. So for an organization that's set up, you know, with multi-layers and, and in different countries or different states, etc., they forget about all this. And even though they talk well about their customers, just to give you an example, for all the conferences that I went to in Australia, bar one, only one conference were, were not guilty of this. The um, management of the company, the senior management of the company, who actually are junior leaders rather than senior managers, um, they start their conferences off with their results against their targets. Um, it's it's awful. It's absolutely awful. I mean, I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't be concerned about their targets and their achievements. I mm. think it's absolutely critical. But, you know, they, they should have a starting point as to what did we achieve for our customers in the medical profession, for instance. I hope that's their main concern is, you know, to what extent did we achieve success? And it was, in fact, at a medical conference that I was asked to go to um, down south of uh, Sydney and... Um, I, I was really worried about it because I was—it was all there with you know uh, doctors, specialists, and so forth and so on. I was worried about what I was going to talk to them about, but you know they're human beings. And when I got there, I found that they were dressed in exactly the same way as salespeople from other conferences and what have you. So, you know that sort of helped me a little. But then I sat in at the beginning of the conference, waiting for my turn, and the main thing they talked about was achievements that they had made with patients, so and John, with particular I, medications for them. So, so, John, are you saying that in terms of the, the U.S. mindset, they're a lot better at them and us rather than Australian companies? Is that sort of the key? No, uh, not, no, not at all. No, no. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's the, the, the main mentality is, is um, us and them. Mm. So, so That's John, what I see most of the time. So how, how, does, it, how does a company change that mentality? Well, that's a very good question, and I think, you know, they need to sit down and think about um, what they're going to do for the future because um, you can't get by on an us-and-them mentality. It's just not going to work. I mean, you might do okay, especially if your competition is uh, is hopeless, but you can't rely on that for too long. Um, you know, the, the, the point is to start with the market and work backwards. What are the problems of the market? Now, you mentioned earlier that I used to run the marketing and sales operations for Schwarzkopf. And we were up against giants, great companies like L'Oreal, Weller, 
Goldwell, very, very good companies, internationally well-known, and so forth. And um, Schwarzkopf was a sort of also ran, so to speak. Um, we had the same kind of products that they did. And these were products used by hairdressing salons and to a lesser extent sold by salons. Um, so the one thing that we did was we met with salon owners. We had, uh, and, and we met so many times with them that we eventually um, confirmed it by calling it the Board of Customers. So I met with them. I met with uh, a number of salon owners, quite progressive. Some did a lot of business with us. Some did no business with us. Um, and uh, we never asked them about our competition. In terms, they, they volunteered information, but we never asked them for that information. We just met to talk to them originally about what they thought about us and all that kind of thing, which was very helpful. But the main thing that came out of it was that their primary need of uh, primary need, full stop, was learning how to be better business people. That was their greatest problem. Um, not buying products. They could buy products from L'Oreal, from Weller, from Schwarzkopf, etc. So gradually, slowly but surely, and those meetings, by the way, there were four meetings a year, every quarter, lasted for eight years, and this happened in Australia and New Zealand. So I was never left in any doubt as to you know, the, the primary needs of our customers. And there, therein lies a problem. That if you have an us and them mentality, you're not likely to meet with customers. You'll have secret shopper and you'll have things like that. You know, I go to hotels and they ask me to fill out their questionnaire, um, you know, and there's 62 questions on it. Yeah, that's a very simple sign. Yeah, the, the, you know, it's a good in one sense because you have to stay an extra night in the hotel just to fill out the questions. Um, that, that, that's terrible. That's an us and them mentality, yeah. very, very clearly. They don't mean for it to be, um, but it is. So we found out that the primary need of, of our customers, our salon customers, uh, was not only good products and good service, but also how am I going to run this business better than I do today? And we became the supplier of that particular service. And it started slowly. It built up. We gained great momentum, and eventually we achieved market leadership as a result of doing that while taking care of our products and all that kind of thing and our service. Um, but that was the main thing that did it is that, you know, for instance, just to give you an example, uh, you know, as well as I do, the companies have conferences for their staff, right? Mm. Well, we used to have a conference for our staff, but we also used to have a conference for our customers. Every year we had a conference that they would attend and they paid for it. We just simply uh, helped them to pay the lowest possible price, um, you know, for rooms and, and, and flights and all that kind of thing. Uh, but the point is they attended the conference, and we did this in Australia and New Zealand, and they absolutely, they absolutely loved it because they were getting the kind of help that they really needed, uh, emphasis on the word need. John. So there you go. So yeah. um, so, so when, yeah. you, when you actually uh, – uh, aggressively, well, yeah, kindly, because you are English despite your years in, in Australia. So you, you can be polite. Just watch it, Peter. <laughs> Just watch it. You can be polite. What, what do companies say to you when you say your problem is you're thinking about yourself and not thinking about your customers? Do you get a bit of backlash when you say I don't, that? I don't say it like that. I don't, I don't accuse them of anything because there's nothing I can do to rewind you know, the, the tape, so to speak. Mm. I talk to them about an opportunity, and the opportunity is to uh, enlarge the focus for your marketplace 
uh, etc. And, and keep focused on your own internal sales and everything else, but also begin to understand the needs of the market. Start meeting with the market. People are scared to death of meeting with customers for some reason or other. I think they find that they'll be out of their depth for something. But, you know, it's just nonsense. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I, I certainly don't get into arguments with people about it. Uh, I simply explain the difference between the two and uh, the reasons why it's happened, and then we get stuck into how we're going to do something about it. And, uh, John, just turning on to the differences between the U.S. and Australia, particularly in relation to customer service, um, have you got any observations about sort of in general what you think Australian businesses could be doing better? Yeah, that's a good question, and I think that, you know, they can do things better, um, just like they can here. So, you know, what I'm attempting to, to, to guide them to do is to learn how to attend to customers and then how to achieve for customers. You know, you can't do the second one unless you do the first one. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're talking about, you know, general service staff or whether you're talking about reps. Um, they've got to learn how to conduct themselves in a way that is uh, satisfactory and acceptable to the marketplace and very helpful to the marketplace. So attend first, achieve second. And, um, and in many cases where, for instance, you don't know the person, they're a prospect, as we call them, then you begin with um, acknowledging that they already have someone that attends to them. So you're not gatecrashing on that. Mm-hmm. What you want to do is show them uh, improved results, net results that they can have. And um, that's what they're interested in. That's what everybody's interested in. And uh, then we go from there. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, the, 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 the problem is that, um, is that most businesses... You know, they're okay at attending to customers and all that kind of thing, especially at retail level, but they don't. Their fault is management's fault. Yeah. They dance to the tune of management. Now, I know what you're like, John. You would be very reluctant to adopt Americanizations uh, because you are you know, a stuffy pom when you think about it. You know, likable when you think about it, but you, you still are a stuffy pom. I'm good looking. I'm good looking. <laughs> I'm good looking. And, and I bet your tennis is improving as well. But look, the question I, I'd like I'd, I'd like you to, to run me uh, run for my uh, listeners the story. Remember years ago when you went to New Zealand and you were surprised how good cabs were in New Zealand compared to Australia because that was a classic case of where that industry over there was doing a lot more for their customers than than the, the cab industry over here in Australia. Yeah, in fact, I can give you a story that in, in, includes that, the point you just mentioned, mm-hmm. if I may. Um, once upon a time, a guy rang me in Sydney and said, we're, you know, we're a car dealership and we're having a meeting on such and such a date. Um, and I you know, heard that you do sales training and that sort of thing. Are you able to join us on that day? And uh, I said, well, you know, if I can, I'd be delighted to. Thank you. Uh, I said, do you have uh, a particular theme um, uh, that you want to... Um, follow that particular day. And he said, yeah, just hang on a second. And I heard some papers ruffling. He said, here it is, here it is. Uh, go for the jugular. Hmm. That was their theme for the day. And I somehow found a way to uh, remove myself from the uh, list of speakers that they wanted. Um, so I uh, um, then, uh, then another case, uh, an Australian taxi association asked me to speak for them in Perth. And uh, 
I the guy said to me, John, you're the opening speaker, so it's very important for you to make a note of our conference theme. And I said, yes, go ahead. So he said, it's time for us to do things better, dot, 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 now, in capital letters, two exclamation marks. So I said, oh, that's very good. He said, well, he said, do you mean that? Or are you just saying that? I said, no, 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 I do mean it. I said, because as a, an occasional user of taxes is in Australia, I agree, it is time for you to do things better. And he said, what do you mean by that? So he got <laughs> upset when I agreed with him. Um, and I said, well, if you compare the Australian taxi service with the New Zealand corporate cab service, we're years behind. He said, what's the New Zealand corporate cab service? I said, well, it's it's um, not a limousine. It's a nice car. The driver usually wears a blazer, he or she. They're on time. They'll meet you at the airport, save time, save uh, money. Um, the uh, car is very clean. They uh, ask if you'd like to listen to the radio uh, or drive in peace. They offer you the morning or the evening paper, and they charge only 10% more than a regular taxi. And he said, well, whatever you do, don't mention that. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, <laughs> I said, why not? He said, because there's no way in the world that they will do that. So I remember thinking to myself, well, maybe they should just change the conference theme to read, it's time for us to do things better, but not so anyone will notice. <laughs> so, <that's, laughs> so therein lies the problem where you've got this, you know, introverted way of looking at things, you know, it's, it's all about us rather than them. And, you know, you get what you deserve in business and in theatre and everything else. Yeah. One, one last one before you go, because some of my listeners have never heard of that, of that story that you, you had when you were a young salesman and you went to that, uh, that uh, curmudgeonly old, or was it a, a Yorkshireman who owned a factory and you were trying to... That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So tell us, story, um, John. Okay, thank you. I, well, I, you know, I, I preface it usually by saying you don't have to love customers because some customers are very hard to fall in love with. Um... For example, when I was about 21 years of age, working for a major company in the UK, now called Reckitt Ben Kaiser, I called on a prime prospect, a Yorkshireman, and I started to sell to him, and he stopped me, and he said, take your papers, son, put them in your case, put your case in your car, get in the car with your case, drive away, never come back, and if you do, I'll call the police and have you arrested. And I said, okay, uh, do you mind... Um, please, if I uh, just say one thing. He said, what's that? I said, I honestly and sincerely wish that I had 50 customers just like you. And he said, why is that then? I said, because I've got about 400 like you at the moment, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, fantastic. Now, if anyone wants to contact you, how do they do it? Info at John Lees, all one word, info as in information, info at johnlees.com.au. All right, buddy, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. All the best. And that was John Lees, as I say, one of the best um, speakers when it comes to customer service and also sorting out businesses that ignore their customers too regularly. Now, Paul, another word from our sponsor. And again, uh, this is Switzer. Uh, Switzer's the sponsor <laughs> because we've got our Switzer Investor Strategy Day uh, coming up uh, in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and we'll be going to Adelaide and Perth uh, towards the end of May. Um, yeah. But uh, in Sydney on March 17, Melbourne March 24, that's their Tuesdays, and Brisbane March the 25th, we're going to be tackling... You know, you know, this is coming up to March is the start of the 12th year of this bull market. Mm. 
And uh, that's a long bull market long by bull market. Uh, historical yep. standards. Usually so, around nine or ten years. Yeah. Yep. So uh, we're going to be asking, well, we're not sort of necessarily prophesizing the end of the bull market, but what do you do if yeah. you're starting to feel that it's a bit sort of, yeah. how do you play a mature bull market? Yeah, that's, and, that's, and, that's and, exactly what we're going to do. And, and what are some of the strategies? some of the smartest people in the country. And we'll have some of the smartest people in the air. We'll also have, uh, because also this is the fourth, this is the US presidential election year, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have... Um, uh, Joe Hockey. Yep. Uh, beaming us, in from Washington. Beaming in from Washington about what's up in the US politics, what he thinks is going to happen. Will the Democrats come up with a contender? Yeah. He plays golf with Donald Trump he as well. He plays Trump with Donald Trump. What if so, he lets him win? Do you reckon, I, I'd let Donald win, wouldn't you? I think if he doesn't, I mean, he finds a way of winning anyway. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, that's right. Um, if, he didn't, if he didn't let him win, you wouldn't play again, would you? So, and Joe's smart enough to let Joe's him Joe's smart that's enough. That's going to be the question I'm going to ask And him. look, it's, that's usually good for markets. So we're yeah. not suggesting the bull market is over, but I think it is a time to, uh, you know, it is just to reposition, think through what's in your portfolio, look yeah. at what some of the opportunities, how you can potentially uh, – they want to protect some some of your portfolio. What are some of the products out yeah. there? So some of the best people in the market will be there. This is our big day of the year, our Switzer Investor Strategy Day. Yeah. So Tuesday, March the 17th in Sydney, Tuesday, 24th of March in Melbourne, Wednesday, the 25th of March in Brisbane. Go to switzerevents.com.au, switzerevents, all one word, .com.au. And only come if you want to make money. If you don't want to make money, stay at home and avoid the opportunity to make money. Well, my next guest on The Switzer Show is Steve Huey, and he started a business which I think a lot of people find difficult to pronounce until they see the logic of it. It's called iFlyFlat.com.au, and I'm sure some people try and call it Ifily Flat or something like that, Um, and it's a great idea. Steve, thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so... Tell us, and it's so obvious why, but some people will still wouldn't have worked there. Why have you called your business I Fly Flat? Yeah, so I Fly Flat, and that's business class and first class. Mm. The only class is where you can actually lay your bed flat yeah. and fly and just have the world of time just lying back, reading a book, or yeah, sleeping. So you call yourself a travel business? Yes. Okay, you're a travel business, and the name is I Fly Flat. All right, so. What is your competitive advantage? It's finding flights that you book on points and finding first in business class. Mm. So the reason why we have the business is so many people have frequent fly points, but they can't use them. Mm. So if you can't use them, they're sort of worthless. Mm. But we can turn those points into flying flat, which is business in first. Why can't people use their points? I think there's two reasons. One is they don't know how many points it costs to go somewhere. Mm. So, so therefore they're not looking for the right price. And second is because frequent flyer seats, they change daily. So it's like fishing. You have to be able to search every single day to see if the seat pops up and you've got to be fast because if you don't, someone else will book it. Okay, and what you're saying is that at any one time, there's X amount of business and first class seats available and the price of those seats are changing all the time and a normal person is not likely able to um, maximise the opportunity to get one of those seats yeah. at a good price. Well the, well, the price is the same all the time, but the number of seats change all the time. Mm. So if you knew what you're doing, you can actually fly Sydney to London mm. 
for any day of the week, any time of the year, for the same number of points. But the magic is you have to be able to find that seat. Mm. And that seat changes daily or, or hourly uh, sometimes. But, but you know, um, I've, I've seen experiences where um, some flights have some business class seats. And I don't know if they're still doing this, but people w- would actually bid to pay extra to get those seats. You know, so I'd say the three seats there uh, and the person who pays the highest price on top of their already purchased ticket, they get them. So that means the price in a sense changes, doesn't it, Steve? Yeah, I think that's a different system. That's like an upgrade bidding system. Yeah. And that's the airlines that rolled that out to try and get some incremental revenue. Yeah. But and, so, and, and they make sure they get rid of excess capacity. Yeah, mm. that's right. And so basically no one gets free upgrades anymore. No. I think that's old. That's gone. Mm. Because everyone... Unless you're a media personality. <laughs> but yes. But somehow they, they, they do make you pay for it. Anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, so airlines have worked out there's no need to give something away for free when there's a whole line of people yeah. willing to pay money for it. Either, either cash upgrades, like mm. you said, a bidding system, yeah. or a points upgrade. Or actually, just buy business class. Yeah, Steve, uh, you, you should have been asked this question before. I should have asked this question before, but it's a great question. What's the cheapest business class flight, say, Sydney to London? Yeah. So that, uh, in terms of points wise, yeah. Singapore Airlines is the best. Uh, it's the cheapest airline to fly with. Yeah. So you can fly return for two hundred and thirty-two thousand yeah. Singapore points, yeah. and taxes only about five hundred dollars. Yeah. So if you had 232,000 points, yeah. you can fly a business return for $500. Yeah. That's the cheapest. Yeah, that's Sydney to London. That's Sydney to London return. Yeah. yeah. But when you compare that to a different carrier, I say Qantas, yeah. uh, they charge 289,200 points. Yeah. And taxes were about $1,000. Okay, Same so route. it is quite substantial, isn't it? Yeah, so um, it's about knowing which airline to use and what yeah. points. Yeah, okay. So how do people actually, you know, interact with you to get you to go off looking for the, the best possible um, seat? Yeah, so we, 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 I guess the best way to explain it is we are like a travel agent, but we only deal with points flights. Mm. So someone will say to us, uh, this is where, uh, this is a destination I want to go. These are my dates. These are my how many passengers. And then you tell us how many points you've got. You might have some Qantas points, some Virgin points, some Amex points, or maybe Westpac points. Mm. What we do is we work out all the different combination that you can transfer your points to mm-hmm. and then which airline uh, you have points, enough points to fly. Yeah. Then we'll go away and start searching every day yeah. on those airlines to see their seats. So you, are you saying then that some people have points in all different yeah. areas and, and they haven't thought about combining them and you do the combining? Yeah, what they you, if you, it's possible. If it's possible. So that's, I think that's where the complication lies because different credit cards transfer to different airline partners yeah. at different rates. So you might have, say, 400,000 Qantas points and 400,000 Amex points. Well, actually, those Amex points convert at a two-to-one ratio to an airline. Mm. So you actually got less. So you've got to work at this. It's actually a very mathematical mm. approach. And, and, and you have a software program that makes it really easy or do you have a lot of... Uh, People who are really good at calculating with yes, pen spreadsheets, lots <laughs> of spreadsheets and okay. calculators. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, I, I think, are you also saying that? Well, I'm going to ask this question: Does the cost of a seat via points 
change at different times of the year? No, it doesn't. So it's always the same. It's always this. But isn't that a bit weird? That, that's the awesome part about it. There's right. actually no price fluctuations yeah. on points. So you, you would have thought like Christmas time, everybody's travelling and, and everyone wants to use their points. So why wouldn't the airlines rip a whole lot of points off you? Well, I think that's to maintain the integrity of the system yeah. because if they charge different points and then that goes towards what those known as are revenue-based mm. Uh, so that that's what I guess is the points plus pay system, mm, yeah. where it's based on price and the points goes up. Yeah. Uh, but the classic awards, which is where the you, you, where the lowest price seats mm. are, that's the same, and that that's actually one of the perks yeah. of using points. Do, do, have you found that there's a certain kind of person, and they may well be a busy person who has lots of credit cards, who just hasn't thought about coagulating all the points to see what they potentially can get? Uh, business owners. That yeah. We help so many business owners. So uh, small and medium-sized business owners yeah. with lots of sort of credit card um, transactions. And yeah, or even most of them don't even think about paying their uh, business expenses on credit cards. Yeah. And they have this huge opportunity to earn lots of points. Yeah. But because there's a business, you don't think about points. Now, obviously, you run your business for mm. business purposes. Yeah. But the magic of these points is that you can earn them really easily and they can get you flying business class. Yeah, I, I know in our business that we, we pay for our printing using Amex yeah. and so we end up with a lot of points. So we, we never really pay for our trips between Sydney and Melbourne all the time because yeah, it's a pretty big bill. And yeah. But that was something we, you know, I guess we learned from people like you, you know, we're t- talking to you and stuff like that. Um, here's a question. I, and I, uh, is there anything else you need to explain to us? Or I guess we should, well, how do you get money? How do you, how do you get paid? You don't get paid in points, surely. No, we would love to, actually. Yeah, that's right, because they are valuable. Yeah. We, so we charge a booking fee. So yeah. we charge um, 1700 bucks to yeah. do business class return to Europe. Yeah. And 1700 Correct. Okay. Yeah, so that, that really covers our time because we only charge upon success. So if we uh, spend three months looking for a seat and there's no seats, there's mm. no fee. Yeah. Uh, but if we are successful, then the customer really, what our value proposition is, you pay us our fee plus the airline tax and the points, yeah. and you'll probably fly for less than three thousand dollars return, versus eight or ten thousand dollars if yeah. you want to buy a ticket. So when you're converting the points to dollars, yeah, uh, working with you guys, uh, a business class flight to where would be three thousand uh, dollars? to Europe yeah. would be three thousand dollars. You can One basically uh, return. Return. You can basically fly anywhere in the world for under three thousand return. Laying business flight. class, yeah. But the timing could be because people get in before you. So obviously, if you're going to work with you, getting in as early as possible makes a hell of a lot of sense. Oh, for sure, that would be your highest opportunity because yeah. that gives us more time to search for seats. Yeah. And then the earliest to tell us, the more chances there are seats too. Yeah. Now, okay. I think I've, I've answered all the questions <laughs> that most of my listeners would be interested to know. Here's something a lot of people don't understand, and, and I do, but you work in the industry. How, why are points so valuable to airlines? How do airlines, because we, we know that you know, for both Qantas and Virgin, mm. their, their point scheme is a massive asset. Why are they so valuable? Oh, excellent question. It's a, I, in my mind, they are both marketing companies. Mm. And what you find is people, uh, a retailer would choose to offer, say, Qantas points, over uh, its competitors that don't offer any points and that attracts more people to, the, to transact with them. Mm. So basically it's like a marketing cost. Yeah. 
And so how does Qantas and Virgin then realize the value of those points? So they sell, uh, their revenue stream is selling points. Mm. So you sell, they sell these points to Woolworths or banks mm. and then so they sell for a, a certain price mm. and then on, upon redemption, the, the value of that is less. So mm. they, make, they make the margin mm. in the middle. It's actually a really excellent business yeah. because you can't lose as mm. a loyalty program. And as you say, um, there, there are people who will use a, a particular kind of card um, to get the points and then they buy certain products as a consequence. And yep. that, so there's a, a lot of win-win along the way and yeah, the airlines are providing the opportunity for it. Well, definitely. So way, the way I say it is if you don't play in the loyalty program, because you, you don't want to give out your data mm. and things like you're actually paying for other people to play. Mm. So even if you opt out, the cost that you're buying things for includes these mm. loyalty programs in yeah. it. Yeah. So if you don't get the benefits, you're really paying for everyone else to get the benefits. Yeah. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that was Steve Huey from I Fly Flat. Paul, do you like flying flat? I'm a bit like you, Peter. I prefer to fly flat in first class. <laughs> Ask me how many times I've ever done that. How many times have you ever done that? Zero. <laughs> With all your money, I've, you're look, the biggest scammer. Like, guys, you wouldn't believe how rich this guy is. You go. I feel sorry. I have flown first class in the States, but first class uh, in the US ain't the same <laughs> as first class on, on Qantas or uh, or Qatar or one of the other airlines. Look, right? I, so, I tell you, I tell you my, my lucky story was I actually got kicked upstairs into first class because someone had promised me business class and when I, I went to the, to the desk, they'd sold out. So they'll force and they to, put you, they'll they'll put you into first, first class. Uh, where the, uh, I can hear all the violins all coming yeah. out, Peter, and they're yeah. all, everyone's feeling very, very sorry for yeah, you. Yeah, the marketing manager of Etihad will never be forgotten, let me say. Well, that's a great plug for Etihad. Yeah, I didn't mean to be a plug, but I had to tell the truth. And that's the show for today. I look forward to catching up with you next week. Thank <laughs> you.